Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast eating worms in Sean Deitch's honour. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sports. My co-host Karen McDonald has spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. And uh, your reference there, of course, uh, mentioning that Everton have won back-to-back games uh, since we last recorded, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But there has been a a bevy of Premier League games uh, due to the midweek fixtures. We caught um, Burnley versus Wolves and uh, Luton versus Arsenal last week. But since then, we've had all sorts of games giving rise to a lot of uh, macro narratives. Uh, Are Villa going to win the league? Question mark. If not them, is it Liverpool? Or perhaps it's Fulham who have recorded back-to-back 5-0 since last we spoke. Uh, All of that and more to follow up, but I wanted to start off outside of the world of football and outside of the UK, uh, looking over at our friends in the States. Something that you may have seen this week, something you may have not, uh, and same to the listeners because it is distinctly non-football. I don't know if you uh, follow baseball at all, or or indeed if you've heard of a baseball player called Shohei Otani. but for simplicity's sake, he is essentially the Kylian Mbappe of the baseball world. He's a little bit older than Kylian Mbappe, but he is, uh, and, and sort of operates in a different playstyle, but he's essentially the hot property. He's the hot property because he is a fantastic hitter, but he's also a fantastic pitcher, which in baseball typically isn't something that happens uh, very often. Um, and the reason I'm talking about him is because he has made news this week for signing a new 10-year contract with the LA Dodgers for $700 million, uh, which is a massive, massive contract Um just in sports in general. It's enormous by uh, baseball standards. I I don't know a lot about baseball myself, but a friend of mine who does was telling me that that contract is is equivalent to like some of the teams and their entire sort of salary put together. What's particularly interesting about this deal is that it's now come out that Otani's deal, although it totals 700 million over 10 years, actually isn't going to see him paid the vast majority of that money for the first 10 years. He's actually only going to be paid $2 million a year for the first 10 years. And then once he's sort of come to the end of that contract, they're going to pay him the remaining $680 million after he's left. So he's going to get $68 million a year for, for a further 10 years. Which is interesting for a couple of reasons. It's it's the first time we've seen a deal structured like this. And his reasoning for it, and the reason that the, the sort of team have accepted it, is that it allows the team to operate with more financial freedom, so in the way of a sort of financial fair play thing, meaning that they can afford to spend money on other players around him, which means in turn he's likely to win more things and and get more endorsements and off the field. He's still going to get all the money guaranteed, but it's just going to come at a later date. The other reason it's interesting is because uh, one of the owners of the LA Dodgers is none other than our own uh, football financial footwork maestro, Todd Bowley. Um, and it just struck me as something quite interesting that we've got this really interesting, basically unprecedented bit of financial footwork, uh, that I believe was proposed by Atani, um, but just shows a way that this is my, the first thing my mind went to, and maybe the reason I've drawn the comparison is a killing Mbappe, who, Kylian Mbappe is going to be on the move this summer, but has these prohibitively high wages that basically stop anyone from signing him unless you're Real Madrid or one of the Saudi clubs, um, and I sort of sort of started to get me wondering. It's like I wonder if someone could make the case to Killian. 
let mate, like, we'll give you a pins now and you can sort of pick up all your endorsed money. We'll pay you the money later so we don't have to worry about FFP because the, the way that it's going to work for Atani is because the club will be paying him when he's no longer with the Dodgers, they won't have to register it as player wages. It's sort of a little bit of a loophole that they've discovered so they can pay him all that money without having to worry about their equivalent. Of, it's, it's a salary cap, essentially, in, in, the, um, in Major League Baseball. Right. And it, it, it got me thinking about that. I was like, wow. I wonder if now that's going to be one of those things in much the same way that, you know, baseball saw Moneyball and that sort of had its ripples across sport. I wonder if this sort of deal structure is going to ripple across to football and we're going to see someone go, listen, Killian, we won't pay you all of the money now so we can ensure that you're surrounded by the best players. But down the line, once you've won a couple of Champions League with us, then you can have all your cash. And I wonder if it's something we'll see coming. Interesting. I did not know that that is how the contract was structured. I mean, wild numbers. Um, it sounds like, and I don't know if this is the right analogy, but it, it sounds like, uh, you know, like the, the race to, to ban drugs um, and, mm-hmm. you know, the way that like people are always inventing new, like quote unquote, legal highs. And then as soon as they yeah. come out, they have to get tested, they get checked, and then ultimately like they get banned. But there's that brief period where, like it's all fair game and i would not be surprised if we will continue to see how how you kind of described it as like financial footwork taking place all over and people will continue to push the envelope in different ways be kind of financially creative until the point where like they've exhausted every single possible avenue and then maybe someone else will come along and think of like two new ones but broadly i can imagine that like this is this is skirting around rules. One hundred percent is skirting around rules, but it's it's skirting around rules, or, or rather, it's sort of a an in, interpretation of the rules, and it's sort of applying to rules that haven't yet been sort of brought into folk, uh, brought into to play. And, and the third reason that this is really interesting, so I, I knew that I wanted to talk about this today, just because. It was a huge bit of, uh, you know, sports news. And I think sometimes when sports news is big enough, uh, it can have massive ripple effects across the entire sports ecosystem. Um, but the third reason that it's particularly interesting that, that really fell on my lap in the middle of the day today was that 15 of the 20 Premier League clubs have today voted to change the rule around amortization of uh, player transfer fees. Now, uh, for those who remember, or perhaps those who don't, a quick reminder, um, amortization is essentially the practice of uh, spreading the cost of a player over the course of their contract which is to say if I pay 100 million pounds for a player and I've signed them on a five-year contract I can put that down as 20 million pounds in my book each year uh, rather than 100 million pounds up front this has been a practice for a long time but the reason things have come to a head is because of you guessed it Mr Todd Bowley who has started signing players for Chelsea on these ludicrous seven and eight year contracts such that someone like Michaela Mudrick is sort of 10 million per year and, and what this has done is this rule change means that, uh, you know, people can still sign players on massive contracts, but they can only amortize them up to the first five years. So in the example of someone like a Mudrick, you could no longer go 10 million, 10 million, 10 million over eight years. You would be stopped at the first five, which means you wouldn't be able to spread it out as thinly. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think um, it's a good it's a good vote to have happened. Um, while you were talking about that, I was almost I was kind of musing about the... I guess the stance of smaller clubs and obviously it's good to be voting against things like that, which potentially benefit um, big clubs, which can, can use a lot of capital or can, can like attract big players and use 
less capital to, to get them through the door and then pay for them later. Um, I always wonder whether or not we're going to see with any of this voting. Um, last week or the week before, you, you were talking about how the Premier League is rushing to try and prove that they are able to govern themselves in the shadow of this uh, new potential in, independent regulator for football. And I wonder if there's any conversations going on in, in any hallways of uh, you know, smaller clubs in the in the Premier League, potentially the clubs that aren't guaranteed to stay up um, year in, year out, whereby they're wondering whether or not they should start voting in these things in a manner which encourages, um, you know, independent regulation rather than, um, sorry, an independent regulator rather than what they have now, which is to be able to regulate themselves. Um, and then I was wondering whether or not they would probably, do you think, do you think smaller clubs in the Premier League are in a system where that works for them? Do you think they like the, the way it is where they can vote for things? Do you think they like the fact that they get equal say, for example, um, or do you think they would be in favour of an independent regulator trying to to stop all of these all of these things coming in? But then also, do you think an independent regulator would would snuff this kind of thing out quicker than the Premier League has just done? Well, I mean, well, a, a lot of stuff there. I mean, to answer your question, I think in the main, the clubs, the smaller clubs in the Premier League, are of course massively happy that they get an equal vote. Not a lot of leagues have that sort of system, and I think it's it's. Part of that democracy is why the Premier League has succeeded so much in the last sort of 30 years where a lot of other leagues have fallen by the wayside. That being said, the massive caveat is, of course, that as we saw, uh, you know, quite recently, the majority vote for this sort of 20 team thing, it's a 20 vote, but the majority needs to be 14 or more, um, which quite neatly lines up with the fact that there are the big six and all it takes is one other team to sort of be in that camp for the the vote to sort of not go through um so for example that might be a Newcastle who are now sort of trying to sit at the big boys table or or perhaps a Villa or a few years ago maybe even a Leicester um all it takes now to sort of break up the cabal of that traditional or, or sorry add to that cabal of the traditional big six is one sort of person to step over to that side and it doesn't really matter if you as a Luton and a Burnley and a whoever else all gather together in your masses and hit 13 it won't go through yeah um, it, it's a good point um I think that yeah I, I'm I guess I'm not surprised in the sense that I think that this rule benefits the majority of the league um i am surprised that uh, as i said there they've they've come to this decision so quickly when a lot of it was was stuff that happened about a year and a half ago um that seems maybe i'm a cynical man but that seems like very quick <laughs> um act, activity in, in the world of football um to be able to to move to strike something like this from the record um it's i mean for the record i i while I while I disagree with the fact that Chelsea have been able to do what they've done, I also think they've screwed themselves. I maintain that they have screwed themselves, and I almost wonder if clubs should be left to continue to screw themselves um, or take risks. I guess um, we are. S- well, well, I mean, ostensibly, a lot of the ruling, like we've seen with with an Everton, for example, that the reason the powers that be will tell you they do this is to stop. Like it's to ultimately stop clubs screwing themselves because whatever your view on Chelsea as a, as a club and an ownership group and whatever, like the club get pulling itself into liquidity is something that ultimately bodies should try and stop the club from doing to itself because that would affect the fans. So in the same way, like 
I think this amortisation rule change, Chelsea will probably be fine and get away with it because they've got these sort of incredibly rich owners and potentially some Saudi cash and whatever else. But if you had someone like an Everton, for example, who were like, ah, we'll do this. Let's do loads of eight-year contracts. They would find themselves incredibly quickly. Oh, you know, I'm not even using it. don't even need to use Everton. But this is what happened to Barcelona and they found themselves in loads and loads of trouble. Um, So even a club as massive as that can can be completely screwed. I mean, it's also in a different way what Everton have done. Um, not in terms of amortization, but in terms of basically taking a massive gamble on future success. And it's something that we see many clubs across England's pyramid try and fail. And it's interesting to see, I guess, the the way that the Premier League has reacted to it so quickly, whereas it's still quite a big problem, you know, from, from top to bottom in the league in terms of, I guess, the slightly more culturally accepted way of doing this which is you know overspend and hope that that overspending can lead to more more like prize money um and continue to to ride the wave yeah 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 it's true and it's tough to know what what will happen in the long term but one of the funniest things I thought that came out from this was that um, I don't think it's fully come out which teams did what, except for one, and it's that Chelsea voted to stop the stop, like voted to push the change through, as in to stop the amortisation over over like longer than five years, which is so funny because they basically absolutely rinsed it out, and now they're like, no, no one else can do this. It's really irresponsible. I mean, like fair play, I think. <laughs> I, th- I think that's just good thinking. Um, if you're trying to trying to stop everyone from going through the trap door that you just opened, um, they uh, there was also one more vote um, that done on today um, from the Premier League. It was a rule amendment to empower the league's board to block a club from registering new players when they owe a debt, a transfer debt, to another Premier League or English Football League club. Uh, until that debt is paid so that is another potentially interesting one that that we could see you know, creep up every now and then when um you know a, a club is trying to get something over the line last minute and, and get um get shut down I, I imagine that would happen maybe once or twice in in the next few years before no one ever does it again um but another interesting i would argue probably pretty fiscally responsible rule yeah, absolutely. And and you know who that absolutely reeks of. You know who was would get caught foul of that first, that rule. There's there's a there's a really obvious club that would, that would break this rule and it would cause like a massive transfer to fall down and everyone to be like, How has this happened? Is it Arsenal? No, it's Manchester United. <laughs> Ah. It's it's so obviously Manchester. The same club that like forgot couldn't sell to hair because they couldn't fax something over in time. It's of course Manchester. Manchester United would be like, oh yeah, oh we're just about to sign like this new Brazilian wonder. And I was like, about to sign you know Vinicius Junior or whatever for 180 million, and then it'd be like, oh uh, actually it turns out that we still owe Leicester one million for Harry Maguire, so we can't get that done, and Leicester are closed for the day. No, how is that not United? I mean, to be fair. You say that, but I'm pretty sure the exact same thing happened with Chelsea with, oh, deep cut. Was it Ziyech to PSG? I think that was a little bit different, though. I just don't think Chelsea cared. Like, Chelsea didn't want to get Ziyech. They they didn't really care. They were more focused on Enzo, which is why they let it happen. Yeah, potentially. Um, That's fair. That's fair. Um, Nice. Well, 
Um, I think another good thing, and potentially something also intended to target um, club overspending, which is that you have to pay your debts before you can register new players. Um, seems like a pretty sensible, logical thing to do that would tackle pretty much exactly what we were just talking about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and hopefully we uh, we find ourselves you know, getting to a weight place where there's more and more fiscal responsibility. My personal prediction, though, is that Todd Burley is going to try a Shohei Otani style uh, financial sort of jigging things around to sign Kylian Mbappe before 2024 is over. Uh, so that's just my prediction. I mean, the Shohei Otani thing is wild because the amount of money that they're paying him after he leaves, and for for the length of time. It's going to be such a, a like a crutch to their finances, and they're really like preparing hard to have a hangover um, and have good success. So it it's interesting. Yeah, it's just an interesting uh, method of running a, a a club, really, um, of any sport, which is to I guess in in some ways accept that you're going to have periods of dominance in leagues and periods of drop-off and you just want to try and max out your dominance period um and i think baseball is quite a good example of that i don't know uh, a massive amount about the sport but i'm quite confident that um there are some really historic clubs that are they even called clubs baseball clubs um teams there are some teams that have like a really you might be able to call them clubs a really storied history but uh, you know now have have like very poor um performances and yeah i guess like any sport there there are some real highs and lows in baseball well i I think that the key difference between i say baseball really any american sport and a lot of non-american sports is that you know 11 years ago the dodgers and really apologies to people who are hating this baseball chat but 11 years ago the dodgers themselves were sort of facing bankruptcy when their current owners bought them but the big difference between a sort of american sport and a uk sport is that you can't get re- like relegated so as we talked about with someone like a reading reading can go from the premier league to the bottom of league 1 in the span sort of league 2 is around the corner in the space of a decade whereas in top level american sport you know the top level american sports that can't really happen um so it makes it a lot more sort of sort of locked in having something as long term as that because because that, they'll be thinking oh we've got to pay him 68 million a year for the next 10 years but in 10 years time so they've got a lot of time to sort of you know consider how they're going to square that money away you know start a little kitty start the college fund for Shohei whereas in football at least like Chelsea might do that but there's no real guarantee that it, it could go I mean look at Leicester for example and obviously Chelsea have a lot more sort of ballast and sort of grounding in the Premier League than, than Leicester did but Leicester went from winning the Premier League to getting relegated in what six seven years like in theory it could happen to Chelsea it, it would be wild but it's not completely out of the question so I think something like that is always going to be a little bit riskier to do a, a, a big sort of oh we're going to commit this amount of money to an Mbappe sure but having said that I, I think Burley will still try it <laughs> you think Burley will try to sign Mbappe with some Atani amortizing I, vibe yeah yeah 100% I, 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 I bet I bet on it he does have the template document <laughs> Uh, let's move to a little bit of actual football here. A lot of talk about rules mm. uh, and the money in football because we've had some really, really exciting results. Um, Aston Villa have won back-to-back games against Manchester City and Arsenal. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. We went, you know, they've got Bournemouth, City and Arsenal next. 
Who'd have thought that this would have been the way it, it, it shook out? They've managed to get Lose six to points. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, draw with Bournemouth, 2-2, oh, yeah. uh, I believe. Um, but like, lose a lead in quite my way to, to Bournemouth. And then beat Man City and Arsenal 1-0. Different kind of games. Um, I mean, I think against Arsenal, they capitalised on their chances where Arsenal sort of had an absolutely torrid day in front of goal. Against Man City, they absolutely obliterated them. It was the most amount of shots, I think, that Pep Guardiola's team had faced since he joined the Premier League. I think it was the least amount of shots his team had had since he had started managing, which is like, what the fuck? Yeah, absolutely wild. Um, and yeah, as you say, the manner in which they beat them was just so emphatic. And the one nil scoreline does Man City probably quite a lot of <laughs> quite a lot of favours um, because they they really set up to just do absolutely everything right. And again, I'd be I'd be really interested to see how other clubs, you know, look at the way that Villa set up in terms of doing things like man marking um, to, to try and restrict space. And, and, you know, we could well be seeing a new blueprint for how to completely shut down a lot of Pep Guardiola's ideas. Yeah, and, and definitely, I think that that could be a, a big sort of template for it. I think maybe the biggest takeaway is it's another game. I think it's five games they've missed Rodri this season and they've lost all five. I, honestly, and I say this, I said this initially sort of as a bit of a joke. I can't remember if I said it last week, but I've definitely said it in person, probably to you. Like, if I'm Jurgen Klopp, or, I, or I'm Mikel Arteta, or even at this point, Unai Emery, next time I play City, I'm just taking, like, my Mohamed El Nenny or my Wataru Endo, and I'm going, mate, get suspended, get a massive fine, the club will handle it. Just go out there and break Rodri in half because that's going to massively improve our chance of winning the league. Like, that—that that is just what I mean. Maybe that just speaks to my complete lack of sportsmanship. But then you see managers sort of coaching tactical fouls and, you know, kicking players out of games all the time. So I can't believe that that's beyond a lot of football managers. So why has no one tried that yet? Well, hey, I mean, uh, <laughs> we could be set for a, uh, I think later in December, um, City take on Everton at Goodison Park. So. Can be Sean Dyche releasing, um, releasing. But, but Everton don't really—they're not like trying to win the league. I'm saying if I'm like you know, whenever Liverpool, well, I think they've already played, so it'll be towards the back end of the season. And same with Villa, and same same with Arsenal. But even in the running, if I were Mikel Arteta, well, there's a lot of things I'd do differently. But if I were Mikel Arteta, I would shave my head bald to get better managerial slipstream, <laughs> and I would go <laughs> Mohamed El Nenny. Here is a baseball bat run out onto the pitch and absolutely kneecap Rodri, you will get a, you know, two-year suspension from the game and a massive, massive fine, but we will hire you as, like, a coach. You can sort of do whatever. Your career's coming to an end anyway. Like, what were you going to do? Like, while away your days in, like, one of the lesser leagues. Here you'll be a club legend. We'll win it. You can even lift the Premier League trophy when we've won it. And that's a pretty enticing package. <laughs> You would cement yourselves as the ultimate evil team in football forever. Although I feel like it being City, some people would sympathise with you. It's. It, I think. Uh, I think we can agree at the very least that it would change football. Uh, it certainly would change football. Um, yeah. Wow. There you go. I mean, a, a nice. Uh, I wouldn't say rare because these podcasts are an hour of me and you talking. Uh, insight into how your brain works, but. Um, Good, enjoyed it. So obvious, so obvious, so obvious. Like if you, you know, if you can kick a team's winger to stop them being impactful, 
Why not? <laughs> there's, if there's one player that's really, really important to the best team in the league, why not kneecap him? Well, let's let's take uh, let's take that one step back. Just one step back. Um, you know, trying to foul someone out of the game, trying to injure someone, maybe one step further back, trying to mark someone out of the game, keeping a player, if not maybe two players, on someone as influential as Rodri. Uh, I think that that is is obviously the the key to trying to beat City. It's easier said than done because he, he's pretty good um, when he's being marked. And, uh, and also City's classic style is to overload the midfield. So if you put two men on Rodri, all of a sudden you've got three men against your one guy left. So you're going to get absolutely diced. Sure. But but again, um, you know, we're seeing... I mean, how many how many games have City lost now um, in, in this season? Is it four or five? I think it's four. I think it's four they've lost in the uh, in the Premier League. I mean that's that's no it's it's it, it's three it's three they nearly lost to Luton but they but they didn't they brought it back got it um, and I was I was thinking I think I was thinking of a Champions League game or something I mean three more examples of how to be City and I think this Aston Villa one at least is new um, if not if not potentially um, one or two of the others and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we, we will see literally everyone try and mark Rodri out of the game if not kick the shit out of his knees. Well, well, we will see. I mean, it, it'll it'll see what happens. Um, Villa, though, I mean, let's talk about them. They are now two points off the top. Um, they have beaten two of the toughest teams to beat in the league, uh, certainly at the moment. Um, is it time to have a conversation about whether this is maybe a Leicester season brewing? Or is that way too premature? A Leicester season in terms of... I mean, it, is it still completely absurd to suggest oh, they like, might be able to go the whole way? The Villa might go the whole way. Is that is that completely uh, completely bizarre, or is yes? Is there potentially an argument for that? Uh, I think it's completely <laughs> bizarre, just because Villa are in Europe, and I think that was pretty key to Leicester being able to do what they did. But then I would also say it's much more reasonable. Yeah, I think Villa have a much firmer foundational platform on which to build a title run than Leicester did. Um, I think is is obviously going to be rare. It's always going to be unlikely still, but I mean, it, it could happen. It could happen. Um, you know, are we going to get back out the, uh, break back out the up the tree analogies of last year with Arsenal? <laughs> well, this time it's Villa. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. I mean, for what it's worth, I, I don't really think they're going to win the league. But I think they have really shown that they are as good as anyone on their day. And what's funny is that they are, you know, winning all the all the hard games and losing or drawing the, the, the easier ones. But look, if you can beat Arsenal and Man City back to back, there's not a team in this league that wouldn't, you know, chop off their left arm for a, for a set of results like that. Um, even at Liverpool. So, yeah, I think Villa are going to be in the mix. I think they'll, you know, I'm sticking to the fact that they'll fin- finish top four because I think Tottenham uh, are maybe falling away a little bit. I just don't like United this season uh, and Newcastle seem to be having their injuries catch up to them. So I'm all aboard the Villa train. I've been aboard since game one. Well, time will tell whether or not it is the usual villains that win the league or indeed the original villains. Very nice. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to well actually just before that we talked a little bit about the Man City game um, I just want to look at Arsenal really quickly uh, only briefly because we spoke about their Luton game uh, last week in this game against Aston Villa 
loads and loads of chances uh, their fans will say maybe unlucky to lose unlucky that the Havertz goal was disallowed uh, various sort of questions around potentially another red card but at the end of the day another game where they were really really wasteful in front of goal and Arsenal's season so far has been characterized by good defense and pretty floppy and sort of sort of fangless attack I just don't think that Arsenal are in the mix to win the league this season unless they have a massive, massive upgrade in the centre forward and maybe even sort of having a backup in the in the sort of wide areas because you can't win the league when your main strike has two goals in December. It does seem to be um a bit of a bit of a limitation, bit of a ceiling. Um it's not a new ceiling. We've known it's been there, at least you and you and I have, and a lot of a lot of people that watch football have. Um just uh still awaiting the point at which Mikel Arteta will see it. Um, and, and in that sense, perhaps he's already a little bit too bald. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it just re- I mean, you're the one who always says this, but like this Arsenal period of sort of torrid form absolutely reeks of, as soon as we get around to January, Eddie and Ketty will score about four goals in three games and Arsenal will go, ah, we're fine. We don't need to sign a striker. And they'll finish second or third or even fourth and go, what? How did that happen? Did we miss our chance again? Uh, honestly, set your watch by it. Uh, I'll yeah. I, I think um, I think it's pretty much guaranteed that Arsenal strikers will have a bang January. <laughs> It'll be the period when Jesus and Nketi have both discover a bit of form, uh, and they'll miss out on uh, Tony or whoever else, and and, and it'll all go poorly. Um, Let's move next on to the next team that I want to sort of tout for potential kings of the Premier League, uh, Liverpool FC, who Mm. have had a bit of an up and down, uh, well, is it fair to say an up and down season? They've only had the one loss and that was sort of quite a dodgy loss to Tottenham, but they've, they've seemed to be a little bit sort of like quietly good, at least in my opinion. I don't know if you agree. They've not been the sort of like high flying Liverpool we saw sort of three, four years ago, but they've been grinding out results and they now sit at the top of the table. I would agree. It's felt quiet. Um, I think that I am still surprised that they are at the top of the league on points and also on goal difference. It doesn't feel like it's been a a year in which Liverpool has dominated. It doesn't feel like a year in which they've had their their usual flair when they are doing uh, as well as as they are. Um, I personally am am very surprised because I'm pretty sure I, I came out and said that I thought that Liverpool getting rid of their entire spine and and signing a bunch of new players wasn't going to work in the short term and I was worried that they were going to have a drop-off. That's obviously not been the case so far, at least. Um, yeah, I think that a lot of the narrative has been around City, a little bit of Arsenal. Oh, wow, Aston Villa are here. And then and then Liverpool's just very quietly running away with the, with the lead. Um, it's been a very good run of form recently um you know in in november um in in october and they kind of look like they're going a little bit from strength to strength and and yeah i think we are seeing a little bit of a of a transition not necessarily in tactics although i'm sure that there are a lot of tactical things that we could talk about um more in the sense that we've talked about a little bit um the fact that the vibe is changing um they're they're kind of reverting back to the the style of just score more goals than than the team across from you and it's creating some pretty fun football 
It is great some pretty fun football. And I, I like that it's one of the, it's such a confirmation bias thing. When teams that win do it, I really like it. And when teams that aren't winning do it, I really hate it. But they have, so, so you know, this might be completely uh, biased analysis. But I always find it interesting when a team's doing really well that doesn't seem to have like a definitive first 11. Um, obviously, you've got, you know, players like Mo Salah there, but like the midfield three has changed around so much this season who they've got on the left and through the middle up top has changed so much this season they've had so many different configurations of it and I kind of like the sort of unpredictable flavor that brings because if you're going to line up against them on the weekend do you prepare for someone like Darwin Nunez uh, and Diogo Yota, or do you prefer for someone who's a little bit more direct and pacey on the left side like Luis Diaz for someone who's a little bit more like clinical at passing and can set up Mo Salah more easily like a Cody Gakpo like what flavor Liverpool are you going to get is it going to be the Harvey Elliott or the Wataru in the midfield obviously you're always going to have Slobo and, and, and McAllister but I, I like that there's been even down sort of like with Andy Robertson out there's been a little bit of a change in who they're playing at left back sometimes it's Simicast sometimes it's Gomez where they want sort of a more traditional defensive left back whereas Simicast plays a bit more in the the Andy Robertson type role sort of bombing forwards and, and whipping crosses in so I think it has you know been quite a good illustration of if we talk about someone like a Spurs as being very very one note Liverpool are two or three notes and that's really really hard to play against because you don't know what to prepare for yeah uh, I think that's a great breakdown Um, and and City still even though they do chop and change a lot I would say they are much more of the you know of, of one maybe two notes but do them really, really well. And Liverpool, for the last few years, when they were flying, one single note, um, one single note, and, and it worked, and it won them the league. It won, had gave them a, a massive period of uh, like run of run of victories. But we also saw the few years that came after it, which was a, a massive like, down spike, whereby people worked them out, and they didn't have any new ideas. And also, all their players were knackered from from not just playing. Um, you know, 36 or 37 games uh, in the Premier League per year, but also going off to things like um, AFCONs. And I imagine that Jurgen Klopp has looked at that and gone, I need to do this in a different way. I don't just want to have another thing where I have a flash in the pan year or two. It's maybe not fair to call it that, but a, a couple of good years and then a couple of really bad ones. He's probably been getting it um, in the neck from his um, from his board for, for creating that environment. And in theory, this is the this is the solution. I would say that I think that it also makes it harder for teams to work out exactly how to 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 beat you at the start. Um, by which I mean, when a when a team that is creating a new system only has that new system, it's just one person works it out, and then and then it gets tackled by a lot of, a lot of different clubs in the same way. Whereas Liverpool are not doing that and and they're potentially a little bit more susceptible to a, a club that sets out not to beat them in a specific way but just to do their thing and do it very well someone like Burnley um, and that's why potentially you know one of the poorer results that they've had was against Luton where they drew 1-1 um, but it's clearly having a, a really positive impact it's winning them games yeah it is, and you know there have been some games like the Everton game and like the most recent one they had against Palace, where they've maybe ridden their luck a little bit. Um, so I'm not sort of saying we should crown them necessarily. But, I mean, but the one which thing team I hasn't? Say, I mean, City just beat oh, Luton by coming back from one 0 down. Arsenal, Arsenal have six, sixty minutes per game they win where they look 
bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's a fair point, uh, and and to be honest, that that is probably you know equal across those three teams, which is why I would say the main reason I think Liverpool aren't going to win the league ultimately is because of the unfortunate timing this year of Fcon, um, and I think for all I was saying there about Liverpool having mm. a lot of different strings to their bow, I think it all sort of revolves around the same fulcrum, which is of course Mo Salah. Um, I think when it's like, you know, Mo Salah creates so many chances for someone like Darwin Nunez versus relationship with Cody Gakpo. Obviously, when he plays, Trent Alexander-Arnold has so much more impact, and both because Mohamed Salah can win great fouls, which sets him up great for set pieces, but also the combination they have on the right side. And I think if you lose Mo Salah, I mean, any team that loses a player of his quality for a month is going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, and I think all the more so for Liverpool, because so much of what they do is centred on how good he is. Um so I think that is probably the reason that, that Liverpool will not win the league this season. Um, they will have probably about a month, maybe a little bit more, where Darwin Nunez is their main goal threat, which is something that even the most hearty uh, Nunez supporter would probably privately say to you is not filling them with a lot of joy. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds about right. Um, that That's pretty fair and balanced. Um, and, and yeah, um, I think you're right. Darwin Nunez does have, um, I think the second most assists at Liverpool with five so far this season. Uh, second to, of course, Mohamed Salah with seven. Um, but four goals to Salah's 11. So that that's the, the real dramatic shift is that Salah is not only more creative, but like comfortably more clinical. Well, I, I also think that, because <laughs> those are a great pair of stats, but I think the stat that is not, like highlighted there is that Mohamed Salah could probably have about two more assists a game if Darwin Nunez could finish. He sets him up all the time and Nunez puts it like wide or straight at the keeper. <laughs> like Mo Salah would probably be close to breaking the 20 assist record by this point if uh, if Nunez could finish. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, we'd be remiss to say, um, not to say that, you know, they've obviously got very different roles. Um, you know, Salah is much more heavily involved in the build-up and you can see that through the fact that he's got he's got more than double the amount of like total passes and completed passes and incomplete passes. Um, but yeah, I, the other thing that, um, that now that I'm looking at the assists table uh, on the BBC's website is that um, Darwin Nunez has, um, sorry, Mohamed Salah has seven assists from 29 chances created. Darwin Nunez there, has. There you go. Darwin Nunez has five assists from five chances cre- created. I, 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 I mean, that's it, really. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you found uh, the stats to sort of back that up. But I, like, I could have just—I did tell you that based on just having watched them like, every single week, and it's like, oh, great, Darwin Nunez got the ball on the goal line again. How's he going to fuck this one up? Um, <laughs> Uh, let's move into a bit of useless trivia. I've got uh, an interesting one for you, actually. It's all about a world record that has been broken uh, over the weekend. Sylvana uh, Zvezda, uh, who to us English speakers is better known as Red Star, are, of course, playing Manchester City uh, tomorrow night. However, they have just broken a record that stood for nearly six decades uh, when they ran out 3-1 winners over their rivals, Mladost Lushani, uh, last time out. Uh, because it was the 122nd consecutive home league match that they had finished without tasting defeat. In doing so, they surpassed the previous world best of 121 set by Real Madrid between February 1957 and March 1965. 
The streak, that first started at the Raiko Mitic Stadium in April 2017, has seen them go on to register 110 wins and 12 draws. Wow, that's... I mean, that's massive. It's also like a, a very high percentage of wins and not just draws. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Just 12 draws in the 121 non-defeats. Wow, that's crazy. 122, rather. I mean that level of consistency yeah. is just mad. To to not be to not be caught out once uh over the course of how many seasons is that? Four, five, five, six, seven, say six, six seasons. Since, since twenty seventeen. So five uh, and a bit. Yeah. Um wow. <laughs> That's wild. Um That is a fixture that no one is looking forward to but like a point there must hit like crack. <laughs> um Oh gosh, it is such a, and again, a, a great example of the fact that I really do think that you know the the mental side of the game is so big um, because how could you arrive at that stadium and expect anything better than a point? You couldn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You'd kind of already be writing it off. You'd, you'd be like, okay, let's just you know whatever. This is a write off. Onto the next one. There you go. Uh, well, speaking of write-offs, uh, my piece of useless trivia for you this week is a fun one. Um, and it's around the so-called... Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's a fun one. Definitely <laughs> it's, it's a dull one. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair. That's fair. Um, the top five. Um, the top five leagues in Europe is often used as an expression. Typically refers to um, the English, the Spanish, the Italian, the German and the French leagues. Um, but did you know that the French league is only the sixth most viewed league in Europe? In fact, as of this season, it's been overtaken by the second Bundesliga. Is that right? Wow, that's uh, that's quite something. That is indeed right. Now, I should caveat that Germany are perhaps unique in their their slain giants, um, and by that I mean. Um, you know, the amount of teams that have had, you know, fantastic amounts of history, um, su- a success, sorry, in their history, um, but now find themselves in lower leagues. I'm, of talk- course, talking about Hamburger SV, Hanover 96, um, Hertha Berlin, Schalke 04, uh, and others. Um, FC Kaiserslautern as well. Um, and that is why um, this this statistic has happened, because, you know, a, a lot of the teams in Bundesliga spy uh, have historical massive fan bases, um, but it is also a testament to the fact that German football is just massively well attended. Um, the Bundesliga came out again this year as the highest attendance of anyone, and I don't think it's particularly close. Um, so you know, football in Germany very much um, something to emulate in at least a few ways. I know you and I, for example, are big fans of the fifty plus one rule when it comes to fan ownership of clubs but yeah i think uh bundesliga the only the only league above forty thousand. i think the premier league have 38 wow what was the um i mean it's amazing when you say that because we talk so much in, in this country about how robust the sort of football league system is and how like people will often say it's a bit of an aphorism in this country that the champions uh, the championship is like the hardest league in the world and it's like the best second division in the world but the fact that the Bundesliga Zwei is is outstripping it in terms of attendance and you know you see a lot of championship clubs talking about how they can't fill stadiums every week is is really impressive 
Sure. I mean, I, I would say um, the championship is seventh. Um, so yeah, yeah, the, the championship is still is still really good relative to the but the, the fact that people often wax lyrical about it being the best second division, like the UK having the best of pyramid, and Germany's even better than that. Their second division in terms of attendance, at least, is is really quite something. Yeah, it's it's just very different in in terms of the structures of the countries. Um, you know, both are very impressive for their strengths. Um, Germany massively good for. Um, you know, community engagement, fan support, um, and, and all of this stuff. And England, fantastic for grassroots football and lower league football, really. Um, obviously, you can talk about how Germany have a, a really good grassroots level in the same way that Spain has a really good grassroots level, in the same way that France has a really good grassroots level. But but England is unique in its pyramid in terms of the the number of leagues um, that you can play in as as an amateur. Um, it, it is completely different gravy, but yeah, in some ways, um, Germany's better. Absolutely. Wow. It, it actually reminds me, this is sort of, well, it's half bait, so it's not even really a bonus, but I saw something on LinkedIn today. I was scrolling through LinkedIn and, uh, one of my connections had posted a really interesting graphic that was the top 20, uh, football clubs by uh, engagement on Instagram. So like not by followers, but by the average sort of amount of likes and, and comments they'd have on a post. And it was really, really interesting because mm. the... So the first two weren't really surprised. It was Barcelona and Real Madrid. Not a huge surprise there. Third place was Al Nasser, which is kind of crazy to think about. But then wow. when you consider they've signed Cristiano Ronaldo, it just speaks to the power that he has. Um, they probably also the craziest put a crazy amount that, of money into like Instagram advertising and stuff. Uh, a hundred percent of that too i mean this is the thing like engagement is does not necessarily equal because you know you can pay for advertisements you can pay for bots uh you can do all sorts of different things but it's just <laughs> it was just an interesting metric that stood out to me for a couple of reasons um sure. if we take it at face value so it was Real Madrid and barcelona were first and second al nasa were third which was kind of crazy um there was only one premier league club in the top 10 like five premier league clubs were in the top 20 but only one premier league club was in the top 10 and it was Chelsea not Manchester United or wow. Liverpool I was I would have guessed and, and there were four Turkish clubs in the top 20 <laughs> like I think Fenerbahce and Galatasaray were both above any Premier League club really yeah which which now it's like it's key to note this is about engagement rather than raw followers so what it might mean is that maybe there's just more of a a culture of like an internet culture of commenting and liking and sharing with your friends and whatever on, on Turkish football club. Post. I don't really know, but it was just something, it was one of those things that really stood out. And I was like, Hey, like even when we talk about global football, like the, the Turkish super league is a, one of the bigger leagues, but it's not like in the big five leagues really that people talk about, or even sort of the big six. Sometimes if people include like a, like a Portugal, when they talk about in terms of quality and, 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 and sort of amount of money in it. So yeah, really, really, really interesting that there are quite a few. Clearly, Turkish fans are incredibly passionate. So maybe they, uh, you know, they, they they share more the, the Germans than than each thought they did. Wow. Um, yeah, I think uh, in terms of fan attendance, I think Turkey sits just outside the top ten. Uh, very interesting. Very interesting. I mean, I think they do have um, again like a really impressive uh, fan culture in Turkey, but. I wouldn't have thought that it was that standout in terms of statistics. So maybe it is a cultural thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, just an interesting thing I saw today. Um, Another interesting thing I saw over the last week was Fulham scoring 10 and conceding none across two games. 
it's it's do you know what it's the first time in my life that i think i'm i'm minded to call the actual season and not the transfer window silly season like it's just <laughs> every every week it feels like i, I don't know like if the premier league writers joined the writer's strike and now it's like it's like two interns and their mum just like coming up with ideas being like so fulham win two times five nil both times like this is ridiculous it is ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, like Fulham, who we were talking about just a few weeks ago and going like, mm, is Marco Silva going to be the first to go? Like, yeah, are things working out for Fulham? And then they've put five past West Ham, of all people, who we thought were maybe one of the better teams this season. And Nottingham Forest, who, yeah, one of the weaker teams this season, but still, back-to-back five nils. How many teams have done that in the modern Premier League era, back-to-back five nils? Like, definitely City, obviously, but... Uh, have Liverpool done that recently? Have Chelsea done that recently? Have Arsenal or United done that recently? I don't, I don't think so. I can't think of any back-to-back. If you're talking about just pure 5-0 back-to-backs. Well, f- well f- five plus. There's definitely been a time when, you know, back in the day when we had like Norwich and West Brom in the league where it would have lined up so City were playing them back-to-back and just scored 16 in two games. But anyone else, I'm, I'm struggling to think. Hey, I'm not sure either. Um, maybe Chelsea in like the the early 2010s when people like West Brom were in the league feel like they they quite liked a, a five or six nil win at that point um, in their time when they had the, like Nelka and Drogba and people like that. Um, I, I think Liverpool could well have had one or two, probably at some point. But then Man the, the, the U surely. Is... Do you remember Man U used to score for fun? It was silly. They won eight two against Arsenal. That's silly. Yeah, they probably did at some point. But the, the, the thing with Fulham that's even crazier is like 10 in their last two. You go a little bit further back and obviously they lost 4-3 to uh, Liverpool uh, the other week. And, and the week before that, they beat Wolves 3-2. So they've got 16 goals in their last four games. What's going on? Yeah, it's <laughs> um, it, it's pretty wild. And I think, uh, well, it's obviously pretty wild. It all started um, with that 3-2 win over Wolves. Um, and then since then, the, you know, the amount of goals that have been scored in their games, there's been a minimum of five in the last four games, which again, feels like a bit of an anomaly. I mean, can you think of many times where a team has, has like scored or conceded 22 goals in five games? Sorry, four games. No, no, absolutely not. It's, it, it's insane. And then two of those games, they've kept clean sheets, which is, it makes it even more insane. So, so I don't know what's going on. I mean, you know, Jimenez looks like he's coming back into it. Uh, Iwobi is playing with more confidence he's ever played in his career. Uh, even sure. Willian's chipping in with, with, with goals here and there. So, hey, Fulham turning their season around. They've got Newcastle next, who uh, we might talk about a little bit later as having lost uh, a bit of steam. But Fulham, uh, they are on the rise. They absolutely are. Um, and I think you know, probably should give uh, some flowers to Andres Pereira, who has been um, in the assists many times. Tom Kearney, um, he's definitely been playing well. Harry Wilson also has, has been chipping in. Um, uh, they're just all flying. And it all seems like like they all had the same really good meal um, before <laughs> before these games. <laughs> and and yeah, it's just, uh, I, I agree. Um, 
it, it, I'd, I'd love to figure out what it like because surely there must be what like did the water pressure at, at like Motspur Park suddenly really improve so they're all suddenly having like really good showers or did the chef get replaced by someone who's like a real dab hand with a spatula and all of a sudden they're eating absolutely slap up canteen lunches who knows what it is but whatever it is it's working so far well if it's one of those things where like it would be really fun to here's a question for you actually this is a this is a segue question but um i was thinking about how it'd be fun if there was some sort of amazon documentary going on for fulham this year so that we could see what was behind closed doors and my question to you cameron is if you could put cameras behind one team this year who would it be and i would also invite you if you have one to hand to give me an answer for a team that you would choose of all time like like the you know the invincible season or um you know breaking 100 points for the first time season or derby's 11 point season when we say this season, are we assuming that I can sort of backdate and start from the beginning of the season? Or yeah, start from this you point? can backdate. Oh, that is 100% Everton. It's 100% Everton. I would love to see, like, firstly, just seeing mm. the difference. Like, I'd love to even backdate it a little bit. What I would like to do is start it from when Sean Dyke starts. No, you can't. I'd love to that. see his first training. No, no, I know. But I'm saying I'd, I'd love to see his training session, like him coming in to all the players who've been under Lampard, who are like trying to chew on the football, right. and him being like, oh, "Right, lads." Uh, and then, but I'll, I'll, I'll deal with this. Season. Yeah, 100% Everton. I'd love to see them sort of starting the season. I'd love to see the effect that having a 10 point deduction actually had on the dressing room. Uh, I think that would make it just that on its own would make it a much more interesting story. Mm. And then I also think the fact they've started to pick up steam themselves uh, would make it really interesting and quite a compelling story so yeah Everton easily in terms of all time it would probably be uh I mean United like 2012 the... 2013 would be pretty epic no 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 no, no. it would be it's a bit on the nose. one of the uh Brazil or Argentina World Cup winning teams like Argentina uh with Maradona uh, or Brazil, oh, when they no, had like, no, no, all the like all the party, Premier like, League, just South please, American Premier chaos. League. Row, like, uh, row your way you, back. You, you know that stipulation. Uh, my my verbal lighthouse. Find the coast. It's Premier League of all time. I mean, surely it's Leicester, right? Just to, just understand like what yeah. happened. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Uh, let's move on to Newcastle losing a bit of steam here two big back-to-back wins uh, surprisingly poor performances from the usually steady Eddie Kieran Trippier uh, and even steady Eddie might be a bit of a disservice because he loves to uh, get a couple of assists and goals as well um, starting to lose a bit of steam injuries catching up with them I mean they're going to be out of Europe pretty soon in all likelihood so so maybe that'll be able to sort of put them back on track but have they bitten off a bit more than they can choose sort of trying to fight on all fronts it was always going to be hard. Um, I think for me, it's too early to say they've bitten off more than they can chew. I still think they're a couple of good months away from from challenging for the top four, but they've they've bled. You know, um, they they've they have been found to be able to bleed um, by by several teams um, in in recent times and. It, it did feel a little bit as if, you know, sometimes they're like, you know, two teams passing each other on the way up and down the, the table. 
um, when when we saw Spurs put Newcastle to the sword four one. Um, that that all, you know those games that always feel a little bit emblematic. Um, well, the, the 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 most recent great example to compare this to is the reverse fixture they had last season when when Newcastle scored like four in the first ten minutes against Spurs. Of course, yeah, great, great, um, great throw callback, um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a couple of bad results. It's enough bad results, and the teams around them have started to steady ships that they now find themselves in seventh place, but. You know, they're still only one point off Manchester United. They're still only four points off Tottenham Hotspur. And Lord knows Tottenham Hotspur do have a crumble in them. Um, I, I think it's not yet cause concern. Brighton are obviously kind of right on their heels, as are West Ham. But it, it's always pretty, pretty in the mixy around there. Um, you, you know, I, I'm not too concerned about them yet. Um, they do have some injuries. Hopefully, um, you know they'll be able to to remedy that. It's coming to the right time of year for you know injuries to be addressed, which is January. Um, that vote didn't go through, which was the one that would stop people like um, Ruben Neves from joining them from Saudi um, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia, yeah. Had a brief moment. Um, it's all right. L- long old day. <laughs> it's a long old day. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not too worried about um, Newcastle yet. Ask me in, in like at the end of December, maybe, but but not yet for me. How about you? Do Do you think that in January Newcastle are? It, it's going to be like that scene in the Avengers Endgame where all of those portals open, but instead of portals, it's just like flights from Saudi Arabia landing on the pitch at St. James's Park. <laughs> and it's going to be like Lewis Miley and some young player who we don't know yet lining up to face against like Man City. And all of a sudden, all the players, Ronaldo's going to step out, Marnie's going to step out. And they're going to have like 40 players on the pitch and, and beat Man City 10-0. <laughs> yes. I think it'll happen. Okay. I think it'll happen as you described it. <laughs> I think so too. It's, uh, it's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to them finding out that they still owe, <laughs> they still owe uh, like half a million pounds in back payments to um, <laughs> whoever. <laughs> to, to Everton for Anthony Gordon. Oh God! What would be what would be the most like clippable thing? What would be the funniest thing? Um, like someone like Joel Linton. <laughs> they still owe. Yeah, that, that that would be the funny. Although he's he's sort of settled in a fair bit now. He, Who would it be? He's got some goals. Um, Joe Willock? No. I think it just would be Anthony Gordon because of the way that he left Everton. Like, he left Everton in such a, like, fuck you guys, I'm going to a successful team. So it'd be kind of funny now if that came back to bite them in the arse. That's a, that's a fair point. Um, I see your... <laughs> I see Anthony Gordon and I raise you one Laurius Carriers. That would be great too, for a lot of other reasons. Um, let's quickly speed on to our last uh, couple of games. Um, Sandro Tonali, a little bit on one of the <laughs> couldn't happen. But... Sandro Tonali, <laughs> um, Sean Dyche, uh, as you referenced at the start of the episode, is he now immortal? Has he been galvanised by the injustices of the Premier League, casting down his beloved <laughs> Everton uh, to take them to greater heights than ever before, as they stormed past Newcastle, putting three past them, and then 
comfortably dispatched Chelsea, putting two past them. They are now 17th place. Without their 10-point deduction, they'd be on 23 points. They'd be in the top half of the table. They'd be just behind the likes of Newcastle, Brighton and West Ham. I mean, again, you've got to wonder what the hell Frank Lampard was doing with this team. And for that matter, what the hell Steven Gerrard was doing with Villa. But Sean Dyche has got these guys cooking. He's got them like comfortably out of the relegation zone within like three weeks of them getting deducted 10 points. That is an absurd feat. It truly is. Uh, and they got their deduction, I think it was mid-November. And they played four games since then. They lost to Man U 3-0 straight off the bat. Um, like the week after they got their deduction. I think we all collectively uh, drew our breath. Uh, and then since then, it, it's been, you know, they haven't conceded a goal. Um, 1-0 away against Nottingham Forest. It's exactly the kind of game they could have lost a month or two ago, and they didn't. And then this pair of very impressive results against two really, un- well, I guess, are they unlikely clubs to have, have lost to Everton? I mean, I think these, these clubs that we've just discussed are pretty primed to lose to someone like Everton, um, Newcastle and Chelsea. But it's it's exactly what we said when it happened, which is that this could well be uh, you know, a, a point at which you can really rally a dressing room and say, it is us against the world and we're going to put this club on our back and we're going to show them what we're made of. And Sean Dyche is the perfect manager to do that. I think he is immortal. I think he'll live forever. Well, he might just keep winning till the end of the season. Maybe it's not a Liverpool or a City or a Villa or an Arsenal. Maybe it's Everton. Maybe in spite of their 10 points, Sean Dyche's pain train will just continue at a rate of absolute speed uh, until they go to the top of the league. I I think, interestingly, next... Well, I say interesting, it'll probably be an absolutely shocking game. But next game they've got is Burnley away. Uh, Sean Dyche versus his his former acolytes. I did see that. Yeah, it'll be uh, interesting to see if uh, if they absolutely hammer Burnley, or indeed if they are they've sort of got a copy of the uh, the Sean Dyche playbook photocopied uh, and they managed to deny them. That's that's true. Yeah, I mean, is <laughs> do you think you'll outlive Sean Dyche? No, 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 no. The the life choices he makes, which is sort of you know wearing that amulet that grants him <laughs> eternal life, versus the life choices I make, which is drinking too much on the weekends, means that he'll definitely outlive me. It, he is probably the manager where I think we'd be like the least surprised if it if it came out that he he like ate ate goats' hearts <laughs> to, to like once a month on the new on a new moon to like keep him virile. <laughs> oh, is that true? Is it? Would it be him or would it be? Oh, I could see. Um, I could see a few managers see it too. Actually, but that's too too easy to go to name um, name the before... <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely see Unai Emery feasting on the heart of a, of a goat Jurgen Klopp for some reason as well definitely Pep Guardiola I think would do it but I think he'd do it Pep Guardiola if he was sort of like a, a vampire type person he'd be like one of the twilight vampires he'd eat like a goat's heart but then he'd like take it home to chef it up and like eat it in a pair of really tight jeans oh that's that's do you know what I, until you said that I thought Jurgen Klopp would be the most terrifying person to watch eat a goat's heart but <laughs> I just I just can't help get away from the idea that he'd be laughing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, look, that is probably a horrific enough uh, image to <laughs> leave our viewers and listeners to for this week. Uh, Rupert, great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much. And thank you everyone at home who made it this far. <laughs> <laughs> we'll speak to you next week. Bye for now. 
Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.